right, if you have a Bible, and I hope that you do, go ahead and turn with me to first, or sorry, Second Samuel chapter 2. We're going to look at the first seven verses this morning of Second Samuel. While you're turning there, let me, let me go ahead and say this to you. Um, for <clears throat> those of you that didn't know, uh, Brother Ron brought an excellent message in Sunday school this morning, and he, he, he read from, uh, and part of his lesson was from the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, 1689. If you would like a copy of the 1689, I have copies of the 1689 for you. Uh, if you'd like that, just come see me afterwards. Um, <clears throat> so, um, very good, uh, very good. I think it's something that, that everyone should have. I think it would be very important, very helpful. So if you would like a, a copy of that uh, to read about what uh, Brother Ron was referencing this morning, uh, that would be helpful to you. You can come see me afterwards, and I'll be happy to grab you a copy. I've got probably about, I think, 10 copies of the 1689 that I will freely give out to you before having to order more. Okay, so with that said, um, let's look at 2 Samuel 2, 1 through 7. 2 Samuel 2, 1 through 7. And uh, I am going to ask, if you're physically able to do so, if you would please stand with me as we honor the ring of God's holy and written word. Second Samuel chapter 2, beginning of verse 1, going through verse 7. I pray we would all hear the word of the Lord that's given to us this morning. Second Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And it came to pass after this that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up into, this, into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. And David said, Where shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up from went up there, and his wives also, Ahinoam, and the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, and Nabal's wife, the Carmelite, and his men that were with him, did uh, David brought up also, every man with his household, and they dwelled in the cities of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. And they told David, saying, that the men of Jabesh-Gilead, um, were, um, were of those that buried Saul. And David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, Blessed are you of the Lord, that you have showed this kindness to your Lord, even to Saul, and have buried him. And now the Lord show kindness and truth to you, and also I will repay you this kindness, because you have done this thing. Therefore, now let your hands be strengthened, and you be valiant, for your master Saul is dead, and also the house of Judah have anointed me king over them. Let's pray. Father, this is now your word. We ask your blessing upon the reading of your word, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Can be seated. Well, I think we can all identify with the reality of when we come to a, a something that come to an event or come to a time when we are super excited of, over something and we are so excited uh, that uh, you know you literally can't sleep the night before because you're so excited to 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 go into this time or to 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 experience this moment or this experience that you've been waiting on and all of a sudden the day comes and now you're super excited and you just can't wait to do whatever it was that you were you were waiting to do a vacation or Spending time with friends or family members or, you know, doing something that you really enjoy, you know, something like fishing or hunting or, you know, <clears throat> whatever the case may be. Just a, a trip that you've had planned for a, a long period of time and, and you are now super excited about that. I think we all have at some point or another known that, that excitement, right? I, I think we've all known some, some sort of excitement when, uh, when, when we just could not wait to, to do something or to get somewhere. Well, that time, we can, we can see how David must have felt like this. Why do I say that? Because David, for years, has been on the run. And now, at long last, right, even with, even with everything that he's been through, 
God has kept David's integrity intact. And now here he is. And despite all that he has suffered, everything that he's lost, all the issues he's faced, all the uncertainties, all the problems, finally the day comes that God had anointed him for, that he would become king. He would be anointed as king. Now, ultimately, we we know that he doesn't become king over all Israel until uh, a couple years from from this text, but uh, it's found in chapter 3, but David has finally is finally getting to experience that which was prophesied and he was anointed for and over by the prophet Samuel so many years earlier. And it's amazing because <clears throat> excuse me because um, David had been anticipating this day since he was a lad, since he was a small boy, right? And it had been confirmed again and again and again and again. And it's amazing how God uses these things as a, um, as, as a way to, to, to um, prepare us for what's to come next. I heard of a, um, uh, some explorers that were hiking uh, in the Rocky Mountains when they encountered a, what, what they deemed a, a very surprising um, sight. There in the, they, they described that there in a sort of a rocky outcrop on a, on a mountaintop grew this very fragile, very vibrant flower that is in the midst of all of this, uh, this, this, this rockiness, in the midst of all of the, uh, in places that it doesn't look like anything should be able to grow, there was this beautiful flower, this beautiful plant growing in, the, in what seemed like all the wrong conditions. And yet, in, in a very real instance, this is what we've got with David. This is what we have with David. David should not have survived as long as he did. David should not be where he is today had God not protected him and kept him. We have a picture of God growing uh, something in what it means seems like it's seemingly impossible um, circumstances in David's kingship. And so with that said, what I want to do this morning is I want to examine the reality of God's king here out of 2 Samuel 2, 1 through 7. And I want to, I want to do this uh, by first and foremost pointing you to God's king and his reign here in verses 1 through 4. God's king and his reign, verses chapter 2 here, verses 1 through 4. It's an amazing reality, as we take a look here, of the rise of King David. David, who has spent so much time in inhospitable situations. But even more than that, think about the time in which David now rises to power. In which David now fulfills God's purpose for him, or begins fulfilling God's purpose for him by being anointed king over Judah and then ultimately king over Israel. This took place in some very hostile ground, didn't it? Some very hostile political turmoil, very hostile political issues were going on. I mean, think about it. Saul had just died. Israel had been routed. The kingdom was without a king. The Philistines had triumphed. The enemy of God, the enemies of God now seemed to be seemed to now multiply. And as 1 Samuel 31 tells us, they now establish they now establish footholds throughout the northern tribes to keep the nation of Israel from being able to rise up against their cruelty. And so in the midst of defeat, God is raising up a king. And it's an amazing reality here. David is in the Southlands, while the Philistines seem to be well outside their boundaries in the Northlands of Israel, uh, within the nation of Israel. 
But this doesn't seem like the greatest of events, right? This doesn't seem like the greatest of times for God to, to show forth his purpose. In the midst of defeat, God is doing something. In the midst of trouble, God is doing something. In the midst of trial, God is doing something. In the midst of heartache and heartbreak, God is doing something. God is working. God is moving. God is honoring his great and holy name by raising up the king that he had promised to Israel so many years before. In the midst of great defeat, God did this. In the midst of uh, in the midst of Israel's defeat, though, God establishes his victory. And it's an amazing, it's amazing feat as we consider, right? Because as we read this, it just sort of glibly tells us, right, as we, as we read in chapter 30, 1 Samuel 31 and then 2 uh, Samuel 1 and, and so far chapter 2, it just sort of glosses over, just sort of tells us, hey, the Philistines were in the land and they were, uh, they were oppressing Israel, right? But in the midst of all this, it's amazing that that's all it says. You say, well, why should it say anything else? Well, given the fact that they had killed their king, given the fact that they had killed the crown prince, given the fact that they had killed everyone else and routed nation, the nation's Israel, it's amazing that the Bible does not consider the Philistine power to be of any significance other than a simple statement of fact. It's an amazing reality. God doesn't look at the Philistines and go, uh-oh, i got to do something else now. God doesn't look at the Philistines and go, oh my, what am I going to do next? God doesn't look at their power. He doesn't look at their defeat. He doesn't do anything. As a matter of fact, God gave the nation of Israel over to the Philistines to, to be destroyed, to be routed, and for her king to, and her princes to be destroyed because of their faithlessness and their lack of covenant keeping with their God. And so in the midst of what seems like in the midst of what is Israel's defeat, God is not affected. God is not affected by Israel's defeat. God is not affected when kingdoms rise or fall. God doesn't, God, God doesn't, doesn't doubt himself or, or, or God doesn't, doesn't begin to doubt his own power because kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. God is completely sovereign over these things. God, God in the midst of what seems like his peop, what is his people's defeat, God declares victory. God declares victory. Because the Philistines were simply the tool in the hand of God. They were God's hand of judgment upon the Israelites for their sin and their king's sin. And it is amazing that God establishes the rise of this kingdom in the midst of the irrelevance of his enemies. As I said, they, you know, surely they're strong. They, they've rallied. The nation of Israel's armies, right? They're strong. But it's funny because from this point forward until we get to 2 Samuel chapter 5, we hear nothing else about the Philistines. There is nothing else said about them until years later. Years later. And, and then, and only then, when they reappear, it's clear from the story that the point of this is, is not that they had gone away, Right? but that they were irrelevant to what God was doing, right? They were irrelevant to God's purposes. They were irrelevant to God's plan. It wasn't that God had just said, okay, now you guys, you can all just go away now. Uh, you've served my purposes. No, no, God let them linger. God let them linger. God, God allowed them to have some impacts and effects upon the nation of Israel and oppress them in certain ways until David rises up in king in his, as a king or as the full king of the nation of Israel and, and drives them completely out and oppresses them. 
But it's funny that God in no way speaks of his enemies as if they are anything, as if they are anything before him. God's enemies are nothing before him. God does, as Nebuchadnezzar reminds us in Daniel, that God does as he wills among the inhabitants of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And he even says that that all of these, the armies of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth, like they're counted as nothing before him. That doesn't change. That doesn't change. And here God says, "Ah, the Philistines, you're nothing. Yes, I've allowed you to do this, but you're nothing. And in the raising of this king named David to begin to fulfill the role in which he was created and called to, it's amazing that in the rise of the king, we see that God's word is always, 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 always going to be fulfilled. You say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, if you remember back in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 10 and 11, God decreed and God for a prophesy, or he didn't prophesy, but, he, but he, he, led, he told Samuel what he was going to do, and Samuel prophesied it to Saul in 1 Samuel 15. Listen to what it says. Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night. And this was the fulfillment of what God had promised. And God's judgment is not, it's not, it's not fun. God's punishment is not easy. But it is what he had been telling them was coming. For years, Saul had opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to repent. And he chose, they chose not to. He chose not to. And I fear that in the climate and the day and the age in which we exist, we act as if God will not judge nations again. Somehow we, we, we convince ourselves that because we live in the age of grace, God's judgment somehow can't come. But in reality, God is not, God is not changed. God does not change that. God's purposes will be fulfilled. And when he has announced, if you do X, Y, and Z, my judgment will fall upon you, it may take time. It may take, it may take what, uh, what seems like in our, atten- in our timetable, years or decades. But God still promises that he will judge sin. Not, not just ultimately, in the ultimate sense, absolutely. In the ultimate sense, uh, when we stand before Christ and we give testimony or we have to answer for, uh, before the throne there, certainly. But also in the here and now, God judges nations still. God still does this. And you say to me, well, so does that mean that God treats every nation like Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, no, not according to Romans chapter 1, right? I mean, look, I, I, I take no delight in saying this. But if you don't believe we are a nation under judgment, look at Romans chapter 1 and what it says God does. God gives them up to a debased mind, right, to a, de- a mind filled with debauchery. And it gives them over to lawlessness and all kinds of things. And you and I cannot look at our nation and say, nope, no judgment here. God still judges nations. And unless they repent, unless they bow the knee, unless they give themselves to Christ through the power of the gospel, and nations converted to Christ, they will taste the wrath of God just like Israel did when Saul was ultimately rejected and they continued to follow Saul. 
But not only in rejecting Saul, but also in anointing David, God's word is fulfilled. Because he says, Samuel is, is gone, has gone at this point to anoint David. And he says this, and Samuel said to Jesse, are all the young men here? Then he said, there remains yet the youngest, and, he, and there he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for he will not, we will not sit down until he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with bright eyes and good looking. And, he lo- and the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is the one. And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. And he died at the hands of the Philistines precisely because he did not obey the voice of the Lord. So um, the, the, the reality is that for us who are in Christ, Saul, we, Saul serves as a, um, Saul and David both serve as, as the reality of what happens when we refuse to or when we, when we seek to follow Christ, when we seek to follow God completely. Because it is interesting, Saul serves as a warning to us, doesn't he? Be very careful, right, to not abandon the Lord, to disobey the Lord. Because in the end, David serves as, a, as, a, as, a, um, as both a warning, as we'll see later in Samuel, but he also serves as a, as a way to remind us of God's blessing upon his people when we are obedient. Because David's movement to become king began in stark contrast to Saul's disobedience. Because as, you, as we've seen throughout 1 Samuel, and as we'll see continue throughout 2 Samuel, up until David's fall, Saul and David were completely different and their contrast could not be more different. Even in David's fall, the contrast is still clear. David's movement to become king begins in stark contrast to Saul's disobedience. And brothers and sisters, I would say to us this morning that we need to be careful that we, that we not only start but finish in obedience. I can't tell you the numbers of, of brothers, right, that, that, that have started over the years in, in complete faithfulness and obedience, only to end in disaster and humiliation. We must keep our hearts. We must keep our minds. We must be men and women who love Christ, serve Christ, long for Christ, hunger after Christ's righteousness. But in God's raising up a king, we also see a heart that seeks after and submits to God, a God who calls his people to be like David, whose hearts are seeking after and submitting to Christ, submitting to God. In 2 Samuel 2, 1, right, as it says here, it happened after this that David inquired of the Lord, saying, shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. David said, where shall I go? And he said to Hebron. Do you notice how this is in complete contrast to everything Saul did? And, and truthfully, a lesser man would have said, hey, I've been crowned as king. I don't have to ask for nothing. I'm going to go take the crown because God has clearly now given that to me. But that's not what David does. What does David do? Even in his ascension, David asks for God's, God's will to be revealed, God's, God's way to be, to be open before him. And he says, okay, God, I know what you've called me to do. But how do I need to do this, right? So David wasn't just committed to the fact that God had called him to this. He was also committed to the fact of, 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 of not only the ends, but also the means to those ends, right? The means to those ends is that it, it mattered as much, right? Because the ends don't justify the means, right? 
The ends never justify the means. And so David cares as much because he has a heart after God, and God cares just as much about the means to the ends as well as the ends themselves. And there's a humble, there's a, there's a, I think there's a really subtle irony here as you begin, as we look here in 2 Samuel 2 1. Saul's name literally means asked for, right? And he was the one asked for by the people. And David's name simply means beloved, and we know that he was the beloved of the Lord. And the one who was asked for by the people sought his own glory. The one who was the beloved of the Lord sought the Lord's glory. It matters. It matters how we live and what we do. It matters where we go. David's movement toward the kingship began with a very different asking. David seeking the Lord. What should I do? How should I do it? And truthfully, brothers and sisters, I'll say this to us, that those of us, those who seek the Lord and seek that the Lord is to be exalted in everything, right? God is going to honor that. God is going to honor that. God be glorified in, in me and through me. God, I want to glorify you in this. I want to glorify you in this job. I want to glorify you in this activity. I want to glorify you this in, in, in whatever I'm doing, whether I'm a father or a mother or a, 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 whatever. Um, I want to glorify you in that. I want to honor you in that. I want to praise you in that. I want to, I want to bless your name in this. Right? God is, when God's people seek to exalt God, God honors that. It is interesting that in verses 1 through 3, if you notice in the text here, the phrase go up is mentioned three or five different times in the text. Go up. Who is the one saying go up? God. Go up. Go up. Go up. It's as if God is pulling a, a similar event as he did to Joshua. What did he say to Joshua? Several different times. Be strong and courageous. Don't let your heart fail. Go up. Don't stand there. Be a man. Go up. Be strong. I'm with you. And this is what he's saying to David. Go up. Be a man. Do this. And the idea here is that God is exalted, David. And, and this is why when you, when, you get, when, when you see here in the text that he went up from, right, from Ziklag to, um, to Hebron, it is it is it is interesting that the phrase both the phrase go up and he went up are seen in contrast of obedience right because Saul was always going down David is always going up don't miss that within the text Saul's always going down David is always going up and it's an interesting reality that that not only the higher elevation here um, was was being mentioned as as compared to Ziklag but even more so that God is exalting David at this moment in time. And so the reality is, is that when it's saying go up or he went up, he's going up in obedience. He's going up like he's supposed to. He's going up in contrast to the way Saul did things. But let me also say this. My brothers and sisters, do not despise the day of small things. You say, well, now, wait, 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 wait. What do you mean by that? Well, David certainly knew that he was supposed to be king over all of Israel. He knew that. There was no doubt in David's mind. There was no question in David's mind. He was to be the king over all of Israel. But he goes from being a, someone who's on the run to someone who is simply a king over a tribe. One tribe for seven and a half years. 
you know, at some point, I don't want to read into the text, but at some point you got you got to begin asking yourself, I wonder if David ever asked God, okay, God, you promised me the whole kingdom. Here I am for seven and a half years. When's the rest coming? Now, I'm not saying he ever did that, but I do wonder sometimes if, 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 if that was a question that David had. The Bible doesn't tell us. But even in this, do not despise the day of small things. You say, well, what, what do you mean by that? How, how does that really apply to us? Well, listen, <laughs> David was anointed in Bethlehem in Judah, very small town, very insignificant town. Right? For us, it's significance because we know Jesus was born there, right? But for the average Jew, Bethlehem was outside of prophesying that the, key, that the Savior was coming from Bethlehem of Judea. Uh, there's really nothing significant about Bethlehem. We know that David was a, small, was, a, was, a, was a young man. Didn't really catch anybody's attention until he killed Goliath in Judah. The prophet Gad directed him in 1 Samuel 22.5 to go into hiding in the land of Judah. The elders of Judah, according to 1 Samuel 30.26, were his friends. Strategically, this was an advantageous, advantageous position since the Philistines mainly held the garrisons in the northern part of Israel. But understand this. Don't, mis, don't misunderstand. God, Dave, for David, his life had centered all around the, the, the region of Judah, hadn't it? He was known. He was loved there. He was loved. He was cared for. They took care of him throughout this area. He was given friends. He was given friends to watch out for him in this time of not only his running, but now as he establishes, begins establishing the kingdom that God has given to him. God has surrounded him with faithful brothers, faithful men who love him and watch out for him and take care of him and help him and, and, and act to, 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 to guard him from those who would seek to do him harm. I think this is interesting. But also, don't miss the fact that for David, this was all about Judah. But why is it that God specifically says, David, go to Hebron or Hebron? Why? Why was David to go there? Well, it is an interesting question that you pose to me, so let me answer it this way. First, Abraham settled in the land, according to Genesis 13, 18, and 14, 13, by the oaks of Mamre, which are at where? Hebron. In the end, by God sending David to Hebron or Hebron, David is ultimately linked to being the fulfillment to God's promise to Abraham. David's move to Hebron or Hebron connects him with the promises that God made to, to, to Abraham. And David's going up to Hebron also anticipates Jesus' introduction in the very first sentence in the New Testament when it says, the son of David, the son of Abraham, in Matthew 1.1. Do not despise the day of small things because God uses the small mundane things to get us and prepare us for the greater things, for the bigger things, for the things, for the other things that God has tasked us with. 
You are and I am where we are today because God has drug us through all of the trials and the tribulations and of exactly what we needed to so we could be the men and the women of God that he has sent us here this morning to be. And given another 20 or 30 or 40 years by God's grace, we will be at that time because of all the trials and all the small things that seem to communicate. that seem to communicate uh, to us God's work in our lives and that, that sort of grow us and so that we are who we are by the end of our existence in this life, exactly who God wants us to be because of small things, because of the day of small things that he uses in our lives to glorify and honor him. Let me just simply add a side note here. Lest you and I deify David in any way, we'll know, we know what's coming with David. David is going to commit adultery with Bathsheba. But even, even before all that, the groundwork is laid here in this text for what's to come. So now, what? What do you mean by that? Well, notice here in verses 2 and 3. So David went up from there, and with his two wives... Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, Nabal's wife, but the the correct terminology would be widow of Carmel. And his men that were with him, David brought up every man with his household, and they dwelled in the cities of Hebron. Now, it is true that polygamy is not, in the Old Testament, forbidden. However, if you know your Old Testament, you know that Deuteronomy 21, 15 through 17 and other places always point to the issues and the problems that will be experienced for a man who commits polygamy in the Old Testament. Polygamy was often recounted straightforward with all of its problems. So 1 Samuel chapter 1, it's very clear, right? And I say, I say not forbidden, but not forbidden in the sense of God, didn't, God never came right out and said, you shall not have more than one wife. But it was forbidden. It was forbidden. You say, well, what do you mean it was forbidden? Like all these guys had all these extra wives in the Bible, right? Well, some of them, yes. Some of them absolutely did. But what did God say in the beginning? A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave not unto his wives, but shall cleave unto his wife. From the very foundation and the institution of marriage, God did not approve of any perversity of that original ordinance that was given to us. So it's true, you, you can search the scriptures all that you want to in the Old Testament and not see where God says, thou shalt not have more than one wife. But if you understand the creation ordinance in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, you will clearly understand that God forbid such perverse activity. So then the question becomes, well, why did God bless David? Well, the only thing I can say to that is that the best of men are still men. The best of men are still men. And as we look at God's word, we need to understand that God blessed David in spite of his, of his activity. And now as to my point of, well, why, what do you mean, Pastor, when you said that this points us to something greater? Well, David's love for women is very clear. 
not just in the fact he has two wives, because if you flip over one chapter and you see chapter, <clears throat> chapter 2 Samuel chapter 3, by the way, Solomon got his love for women from David, just so you know. 2 Samuel chapter 3, listen to what it says here in verses 2 through 5, right? It says this, And to David were sons born in Hebron, and his firstborn was Amnon of Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and the second, uh, Chiliab of Abigail, uh, the wife of Nabal, the Carmelite, and the third, Absalom, the son of Makkah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur, and the fourth, Adonijah, the son of Hagith, and the fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital, and the sixth, Ethrium by Egla, David's wife. These were born to David in Hebron. They say, okay, so he had a bunch of wives. Yes, 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 yes. But do you see the roots that are laid for the problems that are to come? Within those verses, who do you have? You have Absalom and Abnon. You automatically see the issues, don't you? Of what happens when God's people abandon God's commandments. We automatically see this. His appetite for women is what's going to get him in trouble. And Solomon's appetite for women is even amplified. And it's going to get him in even more trouble. So brothers, let us be satisfied with the love and in the love of our own wives. Then there's the, the, the reality of the acceptance of the king here in chapter uh, chapter, uh, chapter 2 uh, Samuel chapter 2 here, verses uh, 4. And it says here that David was anointed by, by these men here in Judah. These were small beginnings, but significant. And then second of all, I want to just simply point you to the actions of God's king. In verses 4 through 7. First, you have the wisdom of God's king by accepting what God has given to David. David serves as king for Judah for seven and a half years, no indication whatsoever that he was dissatisfied. Right? He was used in this new position to prepare him for the greater position God had waiting for him. But also notice this, because we live in a day and age. We live in a day and age when political action is somehow like divorced from faith. Political action, political activity is somehow like divorced from faith, and that's not true. Because David glorified God through political action. Because he acknowledged the men of Jabesh-Gilead. He didn't do it just to be nice to them and to gain, to, to gain followers, but he did it because he acknowledged their faithfulness and their loyalty to King Saul, and as a result, he promises his own faithfulness and loyalty to them. He was politically active because he, he was called by God to do this. He would not forget their faithfulness to, to Saul. He would not forget the faithfulness of, shown to Jonathan. David would prove to be loyal to not only Saul and Jonathan's memory, but also to the men of Jabesh-Gilead. And he honored those men. He honored their good. And, 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 and let me just say this. Let me just say this, because I don't want to get into a rant, but let me just say this. In, first, or in Romans chapter 13, what does it say? Why does the government bear the sword? The government is to bear the sword to, to, uh, to protect the citizenry right, from evil and to execute judgment upon evil and then to promote the good. Right? And any society that doesn't do that dishonors the Lord. And this is exactly what David is doing. David is promoting the good. Right? David is promoting that which is good in the nation of Israel by honoring these men who have acted honorably. 
God decree, he declares God's blessing upon them in verse 5 for their kindness. He declares that God will show them mercy and truth in verse 6. He declares that he, he will promises as God's servant, as the king, the newly appointed king in Judah, that he will do good to them. He will honor them in verse 6. And then he does exactly what God challenges him to do. God challenges him to be strong and courageous. He now, he now says to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, you be strong and you be courageous because I am the king and I will watch over you. So let me close out by doing two things. First, where is Jesus here? Well, let me, let me point you out a couple different things. First, Jesus in our text is he is the greater king who would many years later be highly exalted through a path of obedience to the point of death, even death on the cross, as Philippians 2, 8, and 9 tells us, as Paul tells us in that passage. But Jesus is also God's greater king who did not grasp power out of selfish ambition, but submitted himself to the Father in complete obedience and received the kingship. And Jesus is also the greatest and ultimate fulfillment of to Abraham of God's promises. Because we have a king whose name is Jesus, who rules and reigns right this second over the nations. And we need to look to him, be satisfied in him, call the nations to bow the knee, to bend the knee to Christ, to come to faith in Christ, to repent and to believe Christ, to forsake their wickedness, to forsake their path of of wickedness and come to Christ And for those of us who are in Christ, how do we apply this then in our lives? Well, Jesus himself tells us that those who stand with the one true king in hardship will enter with the king into glory. Those who stand with the king in true, through, through and in true hardship will enter with, with the king into glory. Brothers and sisters, we must be faithful. We must stand faithful. We must not give ground to the wickedness and the wicked things and the promotion of wicked things that this world does. We're in a month filled with the promotion of wickedness, of pride, and sexual perversion. Let us not give in to the wickedness of our culture, but stand against that which is promoted by our culture and stand for the gospel, declaring God's grace to the culture by Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We are also told that for those of us who extend honor properly to the Lord, the Lord will honor his people. And certainly, while the parallel is not exact, David's message to the men of Jabesh Gilead points us, really does point us to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you say, well, how, how, do, you, how, do, we say, how do we say that? Well, let me just say that while, again, while the parallel is not exact, Much like the grace of God is offered to his enemies, right, in Romans chapter 5, verse 10, David offered to those who were not his friends in Jabesh Gilead, right, in our text, he offered peace, terms of peace to them. Because the one who who, who once held their allegiance has been defeated and and, and a new king has begun to reign. The, The same is true for us today. The, once, the one who once held our allegiance, Satan, has been defeated at the cross. The serpent's head has been crushed by the Lord Jesus. And a new king now reigns. And he calls us to repent and to believe the gospel and to call the nations to repentance and faith in Christ. 
we now simply bow the knee in recognition to the reign of Christ. Either we do it now or we will do it later, and later will be much too late. I would say to us that like David, we need to act with this wisdom as we seek God in his word. We need to act with wisdom seeking God's guidance in his word. And it's interesting for me, so let me say this. For David, and it's, a, it's an amazing reality because David sought the Lord how? He sought him through the Urim and the Thummim, right? The Urim and the Thummim. Um, and and, and I, well, I don't want to go into all that, right? It, 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 we'll just, just, if you want more information, you can go look that up. But he sought him through the ephod and the Urim and the Thummim. But, you know, we don't have to do that. We don't. What do we have to do? We go to God's inspired word. We go to the scriptures. And we have a limitless number of beautiful translations of scripture. We have limitless translations of scripture. Stores full of wonderful tools for Bible study, computer software that makes it even easier so that we can better treasure the value of God's word. Value God's word. We don't have to seek God in signs and wonders. and We don't have to seek God in, 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 in deal small voices in the middle of the night, right? We seek him by looking to his word. And I would simply say this, lastly, the text evokes a similar picture in God's plan of redemption. The coming of our Savior King as a vulnerable child, born to peasants, surrounded by those who wanted him dead, is this not the way of the kingdom? Is this not the way of the kingdom? Today's, today's text really does teach us that despite the seemingly great odds, God's kingdom started out as a very small seed surrounded by the nations who wanted to destroy the message of the gospel. And today the gospel has advanced to myriads upon myriads upon myriads of peoples throughout the nations. We proclaim that his gospel must go forth and that our king does and will prevail against all odds. Let us seek to bring him glory and honor. Let's pray. Father, as we looked at 2 Samuel 2, 1-7, our prayer is that your name would be glorified and blessed and praised. Help us to apply your word to our lives that we would honor you and glorify you. We pray this in Jesus' name.